You're listening to We're Talking About Practice podcast by Coachbase, episode one. Today, we're talking to Coach Brian McCormick, best-selling author of 21st Century Basketball. He's going to talk about games-based practices, how you should incorporate more games in your practices so your players can actually do those skills in a real game situation. So let's get started. We just talk about practice. We sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Welcome to We're Talking About Practice podcast. If this is the first time listening, thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every Thursday for your enjoyment, and it can be found on blog.coachbase.com. Feel free to ask, add us to your RSS feed and your iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Coachbase Pro, and our Facebook, just Coachbase. Hi, everybody. Uh, we're excited to have Brian McCormick here today. He is a best-selling author of 21st Century Basketball Practice, uh, Fake Fundamentals, 180 Shooter, and also a PhD in Exercise and Sports Science. Welcome, Brian. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's get started. Uh, no, I read your book, 21st Century Basketball Practice. Um, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift, so tell us about it. What's new? What's different? Uh, well, I guess to start out, it's based a lot, well, one, first of all, in my experience, so uh, having coached different age groups over the last probably 15 or 20 years, uh, you know, everything from beginners up through professionals, uh, you know, and in the United States and Europe doing clinics, you know, all over the world. So a lot of it's based on, uh, you know, my experience and, and drills and games and ideas that I came up with kind of to solve problems in those different environments. Um, and then it's also supported by a lot of research in skill acquisition and motor learning. Uh, so it takes a, a different perspective. It looks at, you know, practice um, in terms of using games more to build fundamental skills as opposed to thinking of fundamental skills and games as two separate entities um, that shouldn't cross. Um, so I guess in a lot of ways that's the that's the biggest difference. Then there's some other um, you know differences just in terms of you know appropriate ways to get feedback and and uh, ways to structure um, a practice or think about structuring a practice. Um, but it's uh, it's designed to to give information um, to make coaches think about what they're doing uh, to provide kind of a template uh, for coaches to build their own practices or at least to think about building their own practices. Um, but I tried not to be too dogmatic in terms of, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. Um, but instead tried to present my experience and then support it with uh, research. And then if, uh, you know, coaches want to use some of it, all of it, none of it, you know, so be it. Yeah, so you're talking about games-based approach, a lot of games. So why, why should people play games? You know, why can't they just stick with what they have and the block practices? Sure. Uh, so first off, uh, you know, I think there's a misconception that, uh, you know, you're either doing a drill, you know, to focus on developing a specific skill or you're playing a game and you just, you know, kind of let players do whatever they want, you know, which, uh, you know, I, I think there's a huge spectrum between those two. Um, and to me, the, the, the perfect practice or, or what I want to do at practice is somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. So I want to be more towards the middle of the spectrum, you know, probably slightly towards the game side. Uh, so that means that, you know, for whatever skill it is that I want to develop, 
rather than breaking it down and isolating that skill, I want to try to maintain as many of the task constraints that are going to be there in a game as possible. So, uh, you know, using dribbling as an example, because to me it's the easiest skill for, for younger children to learn. Uh, you know, typically you start out with, uh, you know, stationary dribbling, you know, right hand, left hand, pound the ball hard, you know, maybe stationary crossovers, then maybe you start walking with the ball, running with the ball, etc. Um, and, you know, the idea is, or the perception that people have, is that before you can do a more difficult, uh, you know, drill or skill, uh, you have to have mastered the easier way. So before you can walk with the basketball, you have to be able to, you know, have completely mastered stationary dribbling. Uh, and so, you know, I used to do drills like that. I used to do a lot of stationary ball handling. I used to do a lot of uh, two-ball work and things like that. Uh, but then I was in India doing clinics. And uh, I had at clinics, I would have four or five basketballs sometimes with as many as, you know, 50 or 60 children. And so I had, to me, I had to come up with, and, and the clinics were short, you know. I mean, it's one thing to do, you know, stationary, you know, a, a long progression of dribbling drills, uh, you know, when you're going to work with the same player, you know, like, like when I used to do individual training with players, you know, I'd work with the same player, you know, once or twice a week over three or four years, you know, so I can do very basic things and have a very slow progression to make sure that everything's mastered and so forth. So, but in these clinics, you know, I basically had two or three hours, you know, with, with uh, these children, um, trying to develop skills and also to show coaches different ways of doing things. Uh, and so, you know, I started doing, playing games of tag, um, you know, and, and so that's a game. It has some of the same task constraints that, would, that you would have in a regular game, you know, so playing the ball, you know, I have to keep my eyes up because I'm looking to see whether, whether I do a game where the person with the ball is trying to tag somebody or the person with the ball is trying to avoid being tagged by somebody. You know, I have to have my eyes up. I have to be able to see the person that I'm trying to tag or see the person I'm trying to evade. You know, I have to move with the ball. I have to move in relation to other people with the ball. These are all constraints that are going to be there in a game that are different than dribbling in a straight line, you know, whatever complex, you know, or difficult, uh, you know, drill that you want to do, dribbling in a straight line. Uh, you're still dribbling in a straight line and you're missing most of the task constraints uh, from a game, you know, because in a game, you know, the defense is there to not allow you to dribble in a straight line, um, you know, and you're going to have to do something with the dribble ultimately, um, whether it's passing or shooting. So tag's a simple game and you can, and you can, uh, simplify it and make it as easy as necessary so that the players can have some success. So simple, easy games that children play on the playground like sharks and minnows, you know, you can throw some basketballs in there and now you've got a, you know, a basketball specific game, you know, that, that you're working on dribbling. Uh, you know, in different versions, you know, same kind of thing. You can play freeze tag, you can play any kind of, of game of tag that you've played as a child you can incorporate basketballs and set up the rules and now you know not only are you working on you know how to manipulate the basketball how to pound the basketball but you're doing so in an environment where they have to be aware of other people and you're starting to incorporate some of the same perceptual skills that are going to be there during the game 
And so to me, I found that, that changing and incorporating these kind of you know, easy games at the beginning of practice to, to work on the basic skills has a greater positive effect uh, moving forward and, and transferring those uh, skills into game situations than simply you know, dribbling in a straight line or passing in a straight line or doing some of the basic drills that you know, are more typical of uh, youth basketball practices. Yeah, so you know, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of data, but what I'm most interested in knowing is your personal experience. How does the player you trained for three years, one-on-one, -on -one, you broke it down compared to the people that um, just played games. How does their transfer, which is the ability to transfer into a real game situation and retention differ? Like from your personal experience, you actually see a huge difference in the performance. I do. I, uh, I actually stopped doing individual training with players because I saw the lack of transfer in some of the players I was working with. You know, and you know, obviously, I, you know, some of the players I worked with were very successful. You know, I worked with them when they're kids and all the way up, and now they're professional players. Uh, but then I had other players who I did more or less the same exact workouts. You know, in some instances, the players worked out together, and one player, you know, improved by leaps and bounds, and one player never really improved. You know, and in my experience, uh, you know, players, or sorry, excuse me, uh, people looked at the difference in the two players and they would always blame it either on athletic or psychological um, things. So they would say, well, the player who made it, he's just a better athlete. You know, or the player who didn't make it, he's just not mentally tough or he's just not this, he's not that. And the, and the blame was always placed on the player and occasionally it was placed on the team coach. So, you know, a parent or somebody else would see a player working out with me individually doing block drills, you know, over time and they would see improvement but they wouldn't see the same improvement in games so then it was ah oh, yeah his high school coach does not doesn't know how to use him properly you know or his high school coach doesn't know what he's doing you know even though the high school coach was competing for you know an area championship you know it was you know it was the coach's fault so uh, you know I the more I thought about it and the more it became frustrating to me and you know so I, I've I stopped for the most part doing individual training especially on a long-term basis because I think we get caught up in this idea that the only way to improve, you know, is by doing these very specific drills and working out individually and hiring a personal trainer and all these things. And I, I think, you know, you can have, uh, you know, as good or better results simply by incorporating more games, you know, going, you know, I mean, people of my generation, you know, nobody had an individual trainer, you know, we went and played pickup games and we developed through these pickup games and then we would see a deficiency in our game and then we would you know work on it on our own you know uh, you know trying to figure out a solution you know so when I was you know in seventh and eighth grade and I played against you know high school kids and I was one of the smallest if not the smallest kid on the court you know I had to come up with a shot that I could get over you know the bigger kids you know so I would go home and you know practice floaters or runners or different ways to to shoot over bigger players you know and now I think everything is so regimented and controlled and adult supervised that, that players lack a lot of the creativity. And a lot of that is because, you know, they've been in these training environments and, and following, you know, demonstrations and not trying to create things on their own. Uh, and so I see with players who are just kind of put into these more dynamic drills, uh, the transfer is greater because 
not only are they practicing the technique of dribbling a basketball or shooting a basketball, but they're also incorporating the perceptual dimension. So they're, you know, learning how to read a defensive player. You know, they're learning, you know, when to shoot, when not to shoot, when to pump fake, you know, when to drive a closeout, when they have enough space to shoot, you know, these things. And in games, these are the important decisions the players have to make. You know, uh, uh, scoring one-on-one in transition is less about the, you know, skill of your crossover, the technique of your crossover, and more about deciding, you know, whether a crossover is even the appropriate move or not. You know, because if you have a great crossover but you use it at the wrong time, it's not going to be effective. You know, most of the time in a one-on-one situation, depending on how far from the basket the player picks, you know, the defender picks up the offensive player, you know, oftentimes no move is even needed. You know, simple hesitation or just uh, using speed to attack the backpedaling defensive player is all you need. You know, a, a perfect example, I think, is if you watch high school basketball now, Every player wants to use the Euro step when they go to the basket. You know, and everything's Euro step. I watched some players, and you would think that, you know, it was the only way that you were allowed to shoot layups anymore was to use the Euro step. And so a lot of players are even, they're, they're using the Euro step. And, and look, I love the Euro step. I used it, you know, towards the end of when I was playing. I've, I've taught it, you know, before it was called the Euro step. You know, I used to call it the Iverson move back in like 2000. You know, before Ginobili was even, you know, using it in the NBA. So, you know, I've taught it. I've used it. I love it. But it's a counter move. It's not something that you use automatically. And so to be able to use it, you have to, be, you have to set up the defense and you have to read the defense correctly. Because if you don't read the defense correctly, you're actually creating a, a more difficult shot. And when I go and watch high school games, I see that over and over and over again. Is players are so committed to using a Euro step because they've practiced it probably in individual training, whether on their own with a trainer, with their coach, whatever, that they've that that's how they finish now, and they use it, and when it's not appropriate, and they create hard shots and they miss these shots when all they had to do was you know stop on two feet and shoot a basic layup, and they would have been fine. So uh, to me, that's kind of the the biggest indication of the problem with the with you know the individual training and and doing the block practice drills is is players you know that are using they know how to they know the technique they know how to do a euro step and they're very good with a euro step but they don't know when to use it and to me knowing when to use it is more important than actually being able you know to do it you know perfectly if you will yeah so a lot of what you say is blasphemy to a lot of coaches uh, so that leads us to another uh, topic, which is fake fundamentals. So a lot of things that a lot of people use all the time, and then you're saying that's not the way to go. So three-man weave, three-on-two, two-on-one, um, not giving up, uh, forcing people baseline. No, tell us about those, why we're doing it wrong. All right, well, first thing... Um the uh, in the book it might come across a little strong, so with some of them. So there's a difference. So uh, when you do when you practice any skill, right? You can have uh, positive transfer, which is uh, you know the practice leads to improved performance in a game. You can have neutral, okay? So nothing happens. You do something a lot in practice, and there's no benefit in the game. You can also have negative transfer, which is you do something in practice and then it creates worse performance in a game. So to me, 
if if what you're doing if there if it's negative transfer then obviously to me that's wrong okay if it's neutral then so be it but ultimately what we want is positive transfer so um, one of the big things with some of the uh, um, fake fundamentals that I that I wrote about um, specifically thinking about three man weave and even static stretching um, isn't so much that those specifically are completely incorrect and you should never do them but you need to know why you're doing them. So like with the three-man weave, to me it's not a passing drill because it lacks uh, the task constraints of passing in a game. There's no defense, right? So if you're using it because you think it's going to make your players better passers in a game, to me, I think there are better ways to go about that. Now, I had coaches when I played in Sweden we did a ton of three-man weaves. We did different kinds of three-man weaves almost every single day, but it was our conditioning. You know, our, it wasn't passing practice. Our coach, you know, we didn't commit 15, 20 turnovers in a game, and our coach come in and say, all right, we need to do three, more three-man weaves so we get better at passing. It was, you know, it was conditioning at the beginning of practice, and we used a ball for our conditioning because, you know, we only practiced two or three times a week because it was, you know, a lower division team, you know. Uh, so if you're using something like that for conditioning, it's not what I would do necessarily, but to me it's not wrong. But if you're saying that three-man weave is what you're going to do to improve your passing in a game, to me I think that's misguided because the mistakes that most players make in a game uh, have to do with the defense uh, because they're either a uh, player is pressured and has to throw the pass earlier than they want to because of the person guarding them or they miss a help defensive player because they're you know, either focused on their own defender or they've got tunnel vision on the player they're passing it to, or they misjudge their teammate's cut. So you know, so a teammate's coming off a, off a screen and they curl and I thought they were going to flare so I throw the ball out of bounds. You know, these are the mistakes that you see more commonly, you know, throwing into the post, the post players you know, calling for the ball with their left hand, but I throw it to their right hand, which is where the defensive player is, you know, things like that. That's to me, that's where most mistakes happen. Um, you know, and obviously there's, there's other things that can happen. And, uh, you know, there's a small argument that three-man weave, you can, you can practice, uh, you know, reading a, uh, the speed of a teammate, you know, and passing to where they're going to be, um, stuff like that. But for the most part, most mistakes in practice are made because or have to do with the defense. And therefore, most, if not all, uh, passing practice should incorporate a defensive player, in my mind. Um, so again, that's where that's where I use a game instead of doing two line two line, you know, pass back and forth or a three man weave, something like that. You know, I just create simple games, you know, that force passing. You know, so whether it's playing three on three without a dribble, you know, or it's playing, you know, basically keep away. Um, you know, and typically uh, I adjust keep away depending on the level of skill, so I can make it easy by giving the offense a big advantage. I can make it harder by reducing the advantage. Um, you know, and I can even make it even more difficult for advanced or let's say high school varsity college type players by putting more defensive players than I have offensive players. You know, so I can I can manipulate uh, the difficulty of the game uh, to, to match the skill level of the players. And uh, and so to me that's 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 the reason why I kind of picked on three man weave. Um, because it's the drill that's kind of used most often, and it's kind of emblematic to me 
uh, you know, a drill that people use without really thinking about why they're using it. It's just something that's always been done. It incorporates passing, so it must be a passing drill. We struggled in passing last game, so we must do more three-man weaves. Uh, you know, and the other thing, I, you know, I, I was working with the middle school team uh, this time last year, and I just started counting the number of passes and, and players uh, in a, you know, again, middle school players, not, not the most skilled players. Most of them were beginners, first-year players, second-year players. In a three-man weave drill with the number of mistakes that were made and the amount of coach instruction that went into it to get them to actually do the drill correctly, you know, they hardly made any passes. You know, I think in like 10 minutes, each player made like four or five passes. Whereas you, you break the groups up into small games of keep away, you know, and now they're getting, you know, almost three or five times as many passes, you know, in the same amount of time. So if we're going to say that repetitions are important and, and we need more repetitions, well, to me, a game like keep away will provide more repetitions than a drill like three man weave two. Plus the repetitions in a game context okay where you're still having to evaluate where's the defensive player who's my open teammate how fast is my teammate moving uh you know and so i'm incorporating the same perceptual skills that are going to be involved in a game uh, you know so some of the other ones three on two two on one i mean it's all the, it's it's the same thing it's to me a three on two two on one it tends to be tends <clears throat> excuse me it tends to end up as scripted practice so coaches want almost the same execution every single time. Um, and in a game, that never happens. You know, you almost never get three players running down right next to each other at the same speed, you know, ball in the center of the court, two defensive players waiting for them, squared up. Like, it rarely ever happens in a game. So the idea of practicing three-on-two fast breaks is great, and I use three-on-two fast breaks and two-on-one fast breaks a lot in practice. Um, but I want to structure it in, in a more... Uh, game-like scenario and not in one where I want a scripted, you know, the same same execution every single time because to me, I've watched practices where it seems like teams are trying to get an elbow jump shot on a three-on-two fast break and to me that's just a terrible shot anyway. You know, so, you know, I don't, I don't want a 16-foot jump shot on a three, when I have an advantage, you know, to me that's a bad shot. A 16-foot jump shot like that—that's that's something that we have to take, you know, end the shot clock or when the defense is doing a good job, not when we have a big advantage because we have one extra player. To me, if we have one extra player, we should be getting a layup, you know, or depending on the skill level, a wide open three-pointer. You know, I just I, I think that settling for a jump shot and having that be our goal to get an elbow jump shot, uh, you know, that's that's just not the way that I want to play basketball. Awesome, awesome. So there's a ton of material there, a lot of individual uh, games. That you, but now let's talk about, I've read all your books, your anti-fragile offense, your fake fundamentals. I want to put it together. I want to use it for my season as like a beginner youth coach. Now let's start with the season. Uh, how does your season look like? What do you think about? How do you progress throughout the season? Okay. Uh, that's one of those things is, I mean, even if you tell me the age group and the skill level of the players, I mean, there's there's such a big dynamic. I was, you know, I was in Kenya a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was doing a youth clinic, and that's what I was talking to the coaches about because they kind of have a reverence towards college or professional coaches. And and I I told them, look, coaching youth basketball is harder than coaching college and professional basketball because players are you know within a single team, players are at such different levels, mm. and they're going to adapt to things at such different rates, whereas, you know, professional players, even, you know, 
LeBron James down to the worst player in the NBA, you know, are still, there's, a, you know, I mean, you think of it as a huge discrepancy in skill because LeBron James is so good, you know, and your average player, you know, comparatively isn't. But the range of skills is still fairly small. Uh, you know, compared to, you know, a youth team where you could have, you know, an under 11 team and you could have one 11-year-old who looks more like a 15-year-old and one 11-year-old who looks more like a 9-year-old. You know, you could have kids over 6 feet and you have kids under 5 feet on the same team, you know, and just in terms of maturity and development and growth and everything, there's such a, such a big variance. Uh, and so it makes it very difficult to plan ahead of time. Um, so when I coach a youth team, I, I honestly, I don't have a huge, uh, you know, set plan for what I want to accomplish. I go into it, um, you know, I kind of want to see where the players are at the beginning of the year. You know, I have my general ideas of what I'd like to accomplish by the end of the season, you know, depending on age groups. So, you know, youngest age groups, I want to make sure that they can all dribble the basketball. All, you know, every player can dribble the basketball and feels confident with the ball in a game. You know, to me, that's kind of like the base you know, youngest age group beginners, I want to make sure that that happens. You know, I want to I want to teach them how to be competitive, you know, but I also want to frame winning and losing in the right context. Um, but to me, I think teaching players to be competitive is important, even though I'm not overly concerned with winning and losing with, with youth teams. To me, I think there's a difference. Um, and then, you know, I want to make sure that all, all the players can make layups, you know, and can make different kinds of layups, you know, so... You know, whether, you know, depending again on, on where they're starting from, you know, I start with a layup off two feet, then we'll go to a layup off one foot, then we might go to a reverse layup, inside hand layup, different things. So, um, you know, starting to develop a little bit of creativity that way. Uh, and then from a tactical standpoint, my biggest thing is offensively, I just don't want players to get in the habit of standing around and watching the ball all the time. So if we can just do some kind of pass and cut, um, you know, on offense, that's that's really all I want. If, if we adapt to that pretty quickly and then we can put in a ball screen, you know, great. Um, defensively, you know, again, with beginners, you know, you know, and, and young, young players, my biggest thing is just, uh, you know, getting them to be able to to guard their man. I'm not even worried about health defense. So I took it, I coached an under nine team, boys team, and I think we made like the quarterfinals at AAU Nationals. And I don't think we really worked on help defense the whole year. I know we never did the shell drill. Um, wow. <laughs> but we rarely, we rarely worked on help defense because what I noticed was it's funny how we coach because when, when you first have put players on the court without any kind of instruction, everybody tends to run to the ball. So if one person gets beat, you have four players running – to try to stop the ball and prevent a basket. Um, so then we coach them. No, 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 no. You have to stay with your man. So then we get players where you know a guy dribbles by his his man, and now nobody's helping. So then we go, okay, well now we have to teach help defense. Okay, and so when it happens here, this person does this, this person does this, this person, and with you know eight nine year olds, that to me that's just overwhelming. So all we did was nothing. And so sometimes we'd have three people go and help on the ball. Sometimes it'd be two people. Sometimes all four would run to the ball. Um, you know, and so, so at that age group, we gave up some open jump shots because if the player, you know, had any uh, wherewithal with, all, with the ball, 
you know, we were leaving people open and we, we never had defined rotations or whatever. But to me, I think kids are smarter than we give them credit for. And so they would see somebody open and the ball would be passed to them and somebody would run at them even if it wasn't their man. And it wasn't because we worked on rotations or anything like that. It was because we never really worked on it, uh, you know, and we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time on it. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why to me, if, if we can just guard the ball, uh, if we get beat with the ball, I think players naturally will kind of move to those areas as long as they haven't been coached or taught not to do that. Um, you know, so it kind of depends whether you're taking over kids that are brand new or kids that, you know, have already been taught not to run to the ball. So, you know, again, experience, skill level, all that varies. Uh, but to me, if we, can, if we can teach kids to guard the ball at a young age, even if we give up layups because our health defense isn't great, uh, you know, then, then we'll, we can work on that the next season or the next season. You know, uh, to me, I don't, I don't think defensive rotations is the first thing that, you know, beginning players need to worry about. You know, I think if we can teach them how to dribble, if we can teach them how to make layups, and if we can teach them, you know, just basically how to stay in front of the dribble, uh, you know, those are my main main kind of concerns at a young age. I, you know, even with that under-19, we hardly worked on, on shooting, um, you know, outside shooting. Because to me, we were playing on a 10-foot basket, and very few nine-year-olds can shoot on a 10-foot basket from any distance with good technique. So it wasn't something, you know, that I wanted to practice. You know, they were going to shoot the shots, fine. Um, but it wasn't something that I wanted to build up a ton of repetitions with bad technique. You know, so I wanted to wait till they were a little bit older, you know, and then they can start to work a little bit more on shooting. So, again, um, my perspective or my, my annual plan is going to depend greatly on who I'm working with, you know, what kind of league it is, how long the league is, you know, whether it's, you know, a typical eight-week recreation league or if it's, you know, a year-long kind of league, AAU type thing. You know, all these things factor into, uh, you know, how I'm going to plan my year. Um, but I also think that because I've been doing it a long time, one of my skills as a coach is I'm pretty adaptable and I can think on my feet. So I can, without having a huge plan, you know, written down, you know, I generally know what I want to get to and what I want to accomplish. So when I work with, um, you know, coaches, when I do clinics, like when I was in Kenya a couple weeks ago, you know, I really encourage them to kind of write out their plan you know, write out what they want to do, you know, and, and they've been working with, you know, the players and, and they know the league and so forth. Um, you know, it's not something that's brand new. So they should have an idea of what can be expected of the players at certain age groups and, and, and stuff like that. So they can start to say, well, you know, this year, you know, we want to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and so then those are going to be the things that, you know, I kind of emphasize throughout the season. Uh, you know, so for me, you know, with the young team, the three things, you know, that I would emphasize, you know, layups, dribbling, and, and uh, defending the ball. So that means we're going to play games that incorporate a lot of shooting layups, a lot of uh, individual defense, and a, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, ball handling against defense. Uh, you know, so, so, and, and so when I coached that team, we spent a lot of time playing a game I called two-on-two -two rugby. Um, and so I, I kind of devised that game as a way to create a full-court game where we shot a lot of layups. 
I didn't expect the defense, uh, you know, to to be great in transition. You know, the the rules stipulate that when we played it originally, the rules stipulated that you had to uh, uh, trap in the backcourt. So if our offense can make one pass out of the trap, they should have an advantage, either a one on o, one on one, or a two on one, uh, going the other way. And so, consequently, you get a lot of layups. And some of them are open layups, some of them are contested layups, some of them are semi-contested layups, um, you know, and you also get a lot of dribbling, you know, full court dribbling and, you know, worrying about whether a defensive player is there or not. Um, you know, and some of it's, you know, wide open court, straight line dribbling, you know, but, uh, you know, you still have to be in tune to whether there's a teammate there, whether there's a defensive player there. And so to me, it was a, it was a game that worked on, the really the four major things that we want to work on so it was individual defense ball handling uh layups and then being competitive you know because we kept score and you know had stuff like that so that was that was kind of a game that that we created that fit with our season-long um you know goal or objective and so consequently we played it you know probably for a quarter to a half of all of our practices you know, once we started, uh, you know, once we kind of got together and figured out what our goals were and stuff like that, um, you know, and so depending again on on what I'm trying to accomplish, that's that's kind of how I look at, you know, my annual plan, um, you know, and then from a day by day planning a practice, uh, you know, I I heard it from Rick Majerus, I've heard it attributed to Dick Bennett as well, but um, you can only emphasize three things. Uh, and so, you know, depending on my team and my competitive level, you know, I try to pick out those three, three to four things that I'm really going to emphasize. And those are the things that should be in every single practice. Uh, and so that's what I build my practice around. Uh, and so, you know, I, I wrote a blog about, it, I forgot where I got it, but, um, one of the, uh, strength training books that I read over the last probably four or five months, talked about, you know, if you want to get at your philosophy for training, basically think about if you had 10 minutes a day to train, what would be the 10, 10 minute, what would be, what would you do in 10 minutes if you only had 10 minutes to train? Uh, you know, and that, that will basically strip it down to what you think is the most essential, you know, and so, again, depending on the age groups, you know, again, with that team, if we only did one thing at practice, we would have played two-on-two rugby. You know, if we could only do one drill practice for the entire season, that's what I would have done with those under nine players. Because I, I think uh, it gave us the most bang for the buck and it, and it accomplished what we were trying to, you know, accomplished our objective. You know, with older, older teams, older players, you know, different goals, you know, I might use different games, uh, you know, and stuff like that. So, but to me, I, you know, I pick out the three things. So, you know, with older teams, my, my three teams, <clears throat> excuse me, my three things, tend to be shooting, pick-and-roll play, and transition defense. So in every practice that I do, you know, I'll have shooting drills, you know, transition defense drills, you know, and pick-and-roll drills, um, both offense and defense. And, and that's kind of, that's where my emphasis is. And so, uh, you know, probably half to three-quarters of a practice will probably be spent um, in some way incorporating those three things. Uh, you know, and again, because I use a game-based model, most of those will be in uh, kind of 
game situations, uh, you know, whether small-sided games or five-on-five uh, games. But uh, that's how I'm going to build my practice. And then, you know, the other things that I do at practice will kind of depend a lot of time on what I see during the games. So if I'm, you know, let's say we're playing a, th- a three-on-three game and we're emphasizing the pick-and-roll, uh, but our passing's terrible, well then maybe I stop the drill and we do a, you know, a passing, passing only game, you know, or maybe, maybe that tells me, you know, maybe it's late in practice. So that tells me tomorrow I need to start practice with a passing game, you know? And so a lot of the drills, uh, are going to be based on, you know, what we've done recently in games or in practice. Um, and so again, uh, with young coaches or new coaches, I encourage coaches to have a specific plan in mind for the whole practice. You know, so when I was starting out, I would have a, you know, I wrote my practice plan out on index cards and I would write out minute by minute what I was going to do at practice. So if I had a 90 minute practice, you know, first 10 minutes, warm up, second, you know, next five minutes, this, next five minutes, this, next 20 minutes, this, you know, however I want to break up the practice. Um, and I did it, you know, I, I had it planned out minute by minute. You know, water breaks, everything was planned out. Uh, and then I also, I would have a couple extra drills in mind. So I might have a fun drill that I could add in if, you know, if practice was going poorly or the enthusiasm was low. I'd have a fun drill written down. So if I saw that, oh, man, you know, there's no enthusiasm today. Nobody's talking, all right, let's do, let's play this tag game because that's fun. Everybody likes it. Let's do that and try to get some enthusiasm back in practice. And then I might have a backup drill, you know, in case we flew through, you know, I thought things were going to take, you know, my practice was going to take 90 minutes, but, you know, 75 minutes and we've done everything I wanted to do, you know, so I might have one more drill in mind that I can add if necessary. Now when I plan practices, I don't put times on drills, and I usually only list out four or five things uh, for practice, because I'm going to adjust based on what I see. Um, and so that's something that I feel comfortable doing again because I I'm, feel like I'm good at thinking on my feet and I've also been doing it a long time. And I also have a stable of drills you know, in my mind that I've used over and over that I can plug in for different situations. Uh, you know, so again, if, I'm, if we start out, you know, let's say with two-on-two rugby to start a practice and we're missing layups, well, I don't have a layup drill written out, but I go, all right, we can't make a layup today. All right, let's do this layup drill. You know, and I have two or three layup drills, you know, in the back of my mind that I can use. Uh, You know, or if it's our dribbling that, you know, we're kicking the ball off our feet and stuff, dribbling the ball down court. All right, let's do, let's play tack. Let's let's get some dribbling, just some specific dribbling practice. Um, You know, so again, how I coach and how I advise coaches is a little different. You know, and, and most of that's just based on experience, uh, you know, and what I feel comfortable doing, you know. But I always encourage coaches, even if you don't plan it minute by minute, to me, I think the most important part of planning practice is the actual planning process. So so just me, even, even though I don't plan out specifics, when I write it out, I have to think about, well, yeah, this drill will probably take about 10 minutes, so that will give me about 10 more minutes, you know. And just that process of thinking about practice I think prepares you for practice. Even if you were to, to plan practice, crumple up the paper and throw it away, and then go in and practice with nothing written down, I think you'd be better prepared for practice just from having gone through that that planning process 
than if you just show up on the core and say, all right, what are we going to do today? Um, and then the other thing is I, I keep my practice plans over a year. Um, so like I have my last season around here somewhere in some box um, so that I can go through and one, I can look back you know, to a previous year and say, okay, well, this is how quickly I progressed something. Uh, you know, this is the drills that I use when, when, you know, oh yeah, I remember that day something went bad. And so that's the drill that I added in because at the end of practice, I take notes on the back too. Um, so I have those notes for further, you know, forever. And then, uh, but also that allows me, you know, to go through and so I can look at what I've done this week and say, oh man, I've done the same drill every, every day this week. All right. I'm not going to do that drill next week. You know, I'm going to, I need to come up with a new drill for that skill. I need to come up with a new dribbling drill, a new passing drill, you know, or a new press drill or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, or, oh yeah, I did this drill, you know, last week and it went really well. Now I haven't done it in a couple of days. I need to bring that back and do it. And so because I keep my practice plans, you know, I have, I can go back and look through them and, and, you know, use those to inform future practices, whether it's within the same season or whether it's, you know, an upcoming season. All right. So that's a lot of information. <laughs> um, but another question I have is, I know you play a lot of three on threes and fours on four and five on five, but you don't want them to just scrimmage. You apply some rules and change the game up. So what are those variations that you use? Okay. Um, Again, it depends on who I'm working with and what skill I want to emphasize. So, you know, like I already mentioned, I might play three-on-three, three, no dribble. You know, I could play three-on-three, three, no dribble in the half court, or I could play three-on-three, three, no dribble, full court. You know, if you want a good conditioning game, if three-on-three, three, full court, no dribble is one of the tougher games uh, that you'll play from a conditioning standpoint, um, especially if you emphasize the defense picking up the full court as I do. Uh, you know, if... if I'm going to do, you know, like I said, uh, pick and roll defense is one of the, or pick and rolls is one of the things that I emphasize, you know, so I'll do, I'll play three on three and, you know, we'll start with a side pick and roll. So I start with the ball on top, I enter the ball to the wing, and then they have to set an on-ball screen before they can score. Um, or I might just enter the ball wherever I want and just tell them, well, you know, you, you have to run a pick and roll somewhere before you can score. So that, you know, allows them to run pick and rolls in different locations and kind of uh, make the defense think a little bit more in, in, um, as opposed to knowing exactly where and when the on-ball screen is going to take place. Um, you know, I'll play games uh, where I make uh, the defense, where I give the offense an advantage, you know, so maybe it's five on four to start with the defense running in from with the fifth defensive player coming in from half court, you know, or something like that. So the offense starts with an advantage and they just need to, you know, maintain and try to create a bigger advantage. Um, you know, I might play, uh, you know, one of my favorite games I play now, uh, and I play a three on three, four on four and five on five is the one second game. So, uh, one of the things, you know, having coached in Europe, uh, one of the, one of the bigger things is when I come back to the States, players play so slow, um, you know, because, you know, in most states, you know, even at the high school level, there's no shot clock. And even at the college level, you know, 35 shot clock, second shot clock for men's basketball prior to this year, it's, you know, it takes forever. Um, so when I was, when I was coaching in Europe, we played a one second game because I want players playing faster and I didn't want to have to create multiple openings. 
So once we had an opening, I wanted to be able to take advantage of that opening. So I want players having to anticipate before they catch the ball as opposed to getting in the habit of catching, looking at the basket, okay, now what do I do? Um, and so to kind of build in that quickness, we play a one-second game. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm the judge and jury, but on a catch, uh, you know, players have one second to do something, you know, to either shoot, pass, or attack. Um, and so uh, attack kind of gets to be a gray area, whether they're actually attacking or whether they're just dribbling, you know, because they know they have to do something, so I reserve the right to call turnover if they're just, you know, dribbling the ball to, to get out of the one-second rule. Uh, you know, but that's, that's, again, it's another game that I, that I use for a specific purpose. And so whatever it is that I want to practice, whether it's passing, dribbling, you know, uh, pick and rolls, you know, screen off the balls, you know, whatever skill it is that I want to emphasize, I would just devise rules that kind of emphasize or force uh, that skill to be incorporated, you know. So when I want to work on rebounding, I don't do a lot of rebounding drills, uh, but a lot of times just in scrimmages, I'll give the offense a point for an offensive rebound. So now the offense is going to attack the boards harder, and the defense knows that they need to, you know, keep the defense or keep the offense off the glass, you know, so they don't give up free points. Uh, you know, so something like that. So just manipulating a scoring system uh, to work on something like free throws. Uh, you know, I don't do a lot of block free throw drills. So you know, a lot of you know, the big problem with free throws always is how do you recreate the game pressure, you know, of a free throw without being in the game. And so one of the things that I'll do is end a, end a scrimmage or end a small side game with you, the team has to make two free throws in a row. So, you know, we play, let's say we're just playing three on three. We're playing to uh, five by ones. My team gets to five. Somebody on my team has to make two free throws in a row. You know, if, either of, if I miss either free throw, uh, the ball is live and we keep playing. You know, so if, if, uh, you know, if I miss my free throw and then we score again, somebody else on my team goes to the free throw line. They have to make two free throws in a row. Uh, you know, we play that out until somebody wins the game and converts two free throws in a row. Uh, and so to me, that's, that's my way of, of practicing free throws, incorporating free throws into the practice and trying to incorporate some kind of game pressure uh, onto the free throws. You know, so it's within a game, game, so there's some of the fatigue that's present during a game. And it's also some of the pressure, you know, because you win or lose based on making that free throw. So, um, you know, those are just some of the some of the ideas, you know, uh, that I use. Um, again, whatever it is that I that I feel like my team needs to work on, I just want to try to to create something um, through the rules or through uh, constraints that emphasizes that skill. All right, so this is a personal question because I've been using a lot of these drills. Uh, how do I encourage my players to get creative and not be afraid to try new things, like get out of their comfort zone a little bit? Okay, um, so again, it depends on... I do think that's one... So I use a competitive college in practice, and so I keep score, and, and uh, especially you know high school and youth teams, I actually... Uh, um, decide my starting lineup based on practice performance. 
um, and keeping track of wins and losses in practice. And so I do think one of the negatives of that potentially is the fear of failure or the emphasis on doing what they're already can do because they want to win the drill instead of trying something new. So a couple ways that I try to encourage uh, creativity is one, I don't punish mistakes. Um, so, you know, even, you know, uh, like I, I remember that the under 19 that I was talking about when we were at nationals, um, I had two, two guys who were, you know, kind of our taller, uh, you know, quote unquote post players. Uh, and so in one game, one of them caught the ball at the top of the key and he shot a three pointer. And so after the game, it was the only, it was the only time I'd ever seen him shoot a three pointer. And so after the game, the other one who was, who was far more cerebral, he came up to me and he's like, well, Johnny shot a three pointer. So does that mean that I can shoot a three pointer? And I was like, well, do you think you can make the shot? I'm like, is, is that a good shot for you? He's like, probably not. I'm like, so what do you think? He's like, okay. <laughs> so, so it wasn't. It wasn't that I wanted to tell him, no, you absolutely cannot shoot that shot, because I didn't want to discourage him. But I also, you know, I mean, we were in nationals and the club had decided to take it seriously and to try to win and stuff. So I also didn't want to start encouraging everybody just to, you know, jack shots whenever they felt like. It. Um, so I think there's that, that, you know, happy balance, you know, between encouraging, uh, you know, creativity or encouraging players to try new things and then also, you know, giving them too much freedom, I guess. Uh, so uh, I guess the biggest thing that I do is I just try to create an environment of practice where mistakes are accepted. Uh, I don't yell about mistakes. The only time I really yell is lack of effort. Uh, you know, I continually say things like, you know, in basic kind of drills, you know, I'll say, you know, if you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard enough, uh, you know, to try to get them to see that, that making mistakes is part of the process, uh, you know, and it's actually encouraged, especially, you know, during practice, that's our time to try to expand our skill level. Uh, you know, I will, I've done things like, uh, like I did a basic layup drill with the team last last year at a clinic and uh you know i didn't think that they were going very hard and they're all kind of just basically making basic layups even though i told them just to finish you know i didn't tell them how to finish and so i stopped them i was like all right you know there's eight guys in line okay on both sides of the court okay if the person in front of you or if any of the players that are in front of you once they attempt a specific shot you can't use that same shot. So basically we need to have eight different shot attempts uh, each time through. So if the first person does, you know, a traditional off one foot right-handed layup, next person you can't do that. You know, you've got to do an inside hand layup or jump off two feet or do an up and under or a reverse layup or, you know, shoot a run or a floater. You know, there's all these different shots uh, that you can shoot. Uh, you know, and so that was one way that I use to try to get them, to force them to do different things. Uh, you know, and so I've done that a little bit in games. Um, so telling teams, you know, especially if I, if I haven't put in some kind of rule or constraint, excuse me, uh, you know, and say we're just playing three on three, I'll say, you know, you can't score in the same way 
twice in the same game. You know, so if you create your first basket off a pick and roll passing to the roller, then you can't, you know, score off a pick and roll passing to the roller again. You know, you need to, you know, the the uh, person using the screen needs to score, or you need to set a screen away from the ball, or you know, do something else. Maybe you set a double screen on the ball, you know, and set a flare screen off of it or a back screen or, you know, whatever the case may be, there's tons of things that you can do. So do something else, you know, try something else. Uh, you know, so I think those are the, the main things. I think, uh, to me, I think the biggest thing, and I, and I talk about this a little bit in 21st century, uh, is it's just the environment that you create. Uh, and, you know, I truly believe that every coach starts coaching for the right reasons. Um, but then I also understand that uh, not every coach is perfect and some coaches are bad and some coaches are unintentionally bad. And a lot of that comes from the expectations from the outside and the pressures from the outside, which when you think about it in that way, seems ridiculous that we're putting pressures on coaches for under nine or under 10 basketball. you know. But nobody wants to look like they're a bad coach and so that tends to kind of uh, you know change the environment you know based on the coach's personality and and the coach's expectations and the environment that the coach creates and so one of the things and and I saw this in a Harvard Business Review article on uh, Bob Knight and, and Coach Krzyzewski but it talked about um, you know basically people uh, you either view people as being inherently good or inherently bad. And the way that you view them will, you know, change the way that you, will change your environment, basically. And so if I view people as inherently good, you know, and so I think that all players are trying their best, they're, they're trying hard, they're working hard, they're trying to learn new things, then I'm going to coach in one way and I'm going to encourage those mistakes and I'm going to, uh, and players are going to tend to feel that, and so they're going to feel more willing to try new things. If I believe that uh, people are inherently bad and they're trying to get away with as little work as possible, well, then I'm going to start to see mistakes uh, negatively, and I'm going to see them as evidence that you know the players aren't working hard and stuff like that, and consequently I'm going to punish mistakes, and then players are going to be scared you know, to make mistakes and they're going to be scared to try new things. Um, so I think, I think that's, you know, a little bit, it's, it's the environment, again, it's the environment you create. If, if players feel comfortable, um, you know, and, and feel like you're supportive and, and you're not punishing their mistakes and, and you give them some freedom as opposed to dictating every single movement, uh, you know, I think that they will be more creative. Whereas if every mistake is met with punishment or criticism, uh, then uh, I think they'll be less likely to, you know, try new things. Yeah. So on that note, uh, thank you so much for the interview. That's a lot of wisdom. My brain's fried from listening to that. Uh, so <laughs> I personally bought a couple hundred dollars of books from you. I recommend it to everybody. Everybody else, go to 180shooter.com. Um, the links will be provided somewhere here. Um, so click on it, go there and buy the book. Also, all these drills will be in our Practice Planner app. So it's animated, you have the video, go download the app, Practice Planner by Coachbase. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you.